Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou, one of the curators of our rolling programme of live and live stream events and the host of this series. The last time Rory Stewart spoke at How To Academy, he was an MP rebelling against his own party's proroguing of Parliament. Now, he's quit party politics altogether, though he continues to share his thoughts on the state of the nation in The Rest Is Politics, his new podcast with Alistair Campbell. Hannah McInnes joined him two weeks ago to hear his take on Boris Johnson's government and the wider world in 2022. Rory, thank you very much indeed for for joining us. Thank you for having me. I just want to start off by getting a sense of, of... For giving us, me and our listeners and viewers, a sense of what you're up to at the moment. Are you on some sort of mission that's undisclosed? What are you doing? <laughs> so I'm talking to you from Amman in Jordan. And you, you may hear the sounds of Amman around us at various times during, during the interview. I'm here working, uh, supporting a charity, which I set up in Afghanistan in 2006, called the Turquoise Mountain Foundation, which works to support traditional craftspeople particularly in the case of Jordan, Syrian refugees, Palestinians, Jordanians, and we sell their products around the world. We're also working to do a bit of restoration and bring some visitors into an amazing Roman site in northern Jordan, looking down on the Sea of Galilee, right on the top of a mountain, surrounded by 30,000 olive trees. And when I'm not doing that, I'm supporting various other charities. I've been recently traveling in Africa with a amazing American NGO called Give Directly that, that supports communities with, with grants and just completely transforming lives in Rwanda. And alongside all of this, the, the Rest is Politics podcast with, with Alistair Campbell. So tell us why you embarked on that and decided to sort of wanted to get involved in that, because all of those projects are very much outside of Westminster politics. But there's a lot of chat with Alistair about what's going on and both of you seem to disprove quite highly of most things. It's an extraordinary experience. So Alistair obviously is you know, more than 15 years older than me, and in many ways a much more senior figure, but he's also very, very, very new Labour. And one of the interesting things about the podcast is he's always encouraging me to be critical of the Conservative Party, which I'm very happy to do because I think Boris Johnson is a, a kind of monster. Um, but whenever I try to then push back and get him to be remotely critical about anybody, and not even Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, anyone that he worked with, he is the most intensely sort of loyal and defensive figure imaginable. Yeah, I, I hear you just permanently trying to sort of get him to stir some, I can't think of the appropriate word, but yes, and, and it doesn't happen. Tell me about, um, so you say there's a, there's a sponsor line at the beginning of I think every podcast I, I missed the first two that that's my honest confession so it could but you are sponsored by the week and there's a line that you say at the beginning of every single podcast which is one of my biggest gripes about modern politics is it's so much about ideology and certainty and there's not enough practical options which is why you like the week but this is what I'm trying to figure out which is that the podcast as brilliant as it is is about discussing ideology and um, you know, what we wish would happen, what we hope would happen. 
So how, you know, how does that translate to getting stuff done and the practical side that you are so keen to see? I think it's a really good, really good challenge. I think that there is a sense in which the weirdness of modern politics is that it takes place, as you said, a very vague level of abstraction. A lot of politics is about slogans, and that's true in the United States as much as it is in Britain. And I remember feeling very, very strongly as a constituency MP in Cumbria, that what I really wanted to do was grapple with things that really made a difference to daily lives, which might be in a rural village getting superfast broadband installed, it might be getting a, a lift installed for disabled access at Penrith Station. But often on doorsteps, what people wanted to do was shout at me about the Saudi bombing of Yemen. And my connection as a backbench MP with the Saudi bombing of Yemen was a, a pretty, pretty, you know, indirect and abstruse one. And I think it taught me one of the strangenesses of politics, which is that at the sort of big Saudi bombing of Yemen level, or at the big standoffs about austerity with a capital A or socialism with a capital S, it feels like there are these kind of incredibly dramatic fights in British politics. But actually, in terms of what really makes a difference to people's lives, which could be, for example, adult social care, the parties agree, but don't do anything. Nobody's actually fixing stuff that makes a difference. Nobody's fixing the stuff that, you know, the, uh, an older person on a low income in Britain will be seen by a carer, if they're lucky, 15 minutes a day in Cumbria, which isn't even enough to, to change them, let alone feed them. It's a completely uh, shameful, uncivilized system, and it's something we're not fixing. And I think part of the thing that I keep struggling with is this gap between the sort of language, all this talk from all these political parties and the, the reality of getting things done on the ground. And what I really respect in people is administration, governing, running things, doing things, not talking about things. But of course, politics is primarily about talking, not doing. So how do we, how do we get to a place of doing? I mean, would you, are you saying that you wouldn't consider sort of coming back into politics because you don't think that's the way to get things done because it's a very bleak view for it's a, you know for people watching who aren't involved in politics who have hope for the future if politics isn't the way to get things done what what are we what are we to hope well, I, I mean I think it's very complicated I mean I think it's partly our system I mean I think it would be really freshened up if we had a different electoral system some sort of alternative voting system, which might give a bit of a chance for independents and new parties to emerge and shake up the kind of dead grip of these old parties and the way they do things. I think that would be a real help. I think it is true that you can do things in politics. If you're lucky enough to become a, a cabinet minister, for example, you do have power. And particularly if you have a prime minister who's sensible and is prepared to give space to sensible things, you can get stuff done. But there is a real element of lottery and uncertainty. And at the heart of it is us, voters, and the kind of people we vote for. We are voting for people who often talk well. We don't have much of a sense of how they actually perform. We don't really see... I mean, and we all experience this in our own daily lives when we're interviewing people for jobs. You only really know how good someone is when you're actually working alongside them. You can't really tell from how they perform in an interview. But with politicians, we never really know what they're doing. I mean, Whitehall, Westminster is a bit mysterious. 
you don't really see inside number 10. You don't really know what the Prime Minister is doing with his days. So, and of course, this reaches its absolute most sort of grotesque, monstrous form in Boris Johnson himself, who is somebody who's completely incapable of running anything, who has no interest in detail, who has never done any administration in his life, who has the attention span of a flea, but who is an extraordinary talker. And because nobody's ever forced to actually work in an office with him or see how little attention he's paying to the details of things, how much he's misunderstanding, he can just keep getting away with it. I mean, you definitely don't mince your words about Boris. I, <laughs> um, did you feel this way about him always? Or has it, you know, is there a sense of looking back as you did on a recent podcast to, you know, when you missed out to him and the sort of certain sense of frustration at that? Or have you always had such a, you despised him? Well, so I, I definitely felt it long before I ran for leadership. In fact, the main reason I was running for leadership was out of complete horror at the idea that Boris Johnson was going to take over the country. And I got in a lot of trouble from colleagues when I was running for leadership because they kept accusing me of making it too personal and making these great blue on blue attacks. So it wasn't driven by bitterness of being defeated by him. It was driven by a sort of horror at the idea of him taking over. But you're also right that I didn't always think about him like that. When I first met him, I first met him in Iraq in 2005 when I was working for the British government and he came out as an MP. And I thought, I was struck by the fact he wasn't very interested in detail. He didn't really want to know about the difficult things in Iraq. But I was also struck that he was very courteous, very polite. He listened. He, unlike most politicians, he didn't give great pompous lectures on foreign policy. He was a good guest to have, right? He was a a good guest to have. And then even in 2017, when he was uh, running against but Theresa May, sorry, 20, 2016, 17, when he was running against Theresa May to um, be the, the prime minister, I still thought this is a, a relatively amiable person. Maybe he's somebody who could have good people around him. I get that he's not very good at the stuff himself, but maybe if he had a strong team, he'd be fine. It was only when I started actually working directly for him in the foreign office as the minister of state. So he was the foreign secretary, I was the minister of state that I really began to realise what a catastrophe this was. So there's, just to sort of pick up on, you know, his team, you said, it's sort of okay if he has, has a team around him. But what I don't understand is when I listen to you and Alistair with so many thoughts, this comes back to Boris, so many thoughts of, of ways you could change the system, things you could put into place. You know, I, I wonder, I, do you is that something that you guys, you both particularly you, want to do? I mean, there's a moment in the podcast when you're actually talking about developing countries and you and you talk and you make a interesting sort of comment on politics, which is basically the challenges to hope. And you, know, you say this is what politics is about. You compromise and you try to be pragmatic. You set limits. There are people you don't with and then there are people you do, but there is a lot of messiness. And I'm just wondering if you know we ever change anything. If at the moment there isn't much messiness, everyone with Boris agrees with Boris, and everyone who doesn't has gone. How do we get anything you know done if you don't all come back? It's very, it's very. I mean, you're, you're right. It's it's very interesting and difficult. But the truth is that these parties are incredibly tribal and vicious. I remember when I announced that I was going to be running as an independent for Mayor of London turning to my colleague who'd become the policing minister and saying to him, 
I'd just seen the head of the Metropolitan Police and I said to the policing minister, um, would love to sit down and just talk about policing in London. And he turned on me and his face was in a sort of snarl and he shouted, absolutely not, because his sense of betrayal that I'd become a, an independent and I wasn't a conservative anymore completely sort of shut it off. And the fact that we'd been working together happily, I thought for years and knew each other well, suddenly you go into the dining room and everyone turns their back on you. I mean, it's a very, very odd mm. situation. And many of my colleagues seeing my tweets, hearing me on the rest of the politics, will be absolutely disgusted. They will think I'm a traitor. They will say I'm a narcissist, I'm an egotist, that I'm undermining the prime minister when Britain's at war, that I'm, you know, giving, I'm uh, providing support for the Labour Party, that I'm, you know, betraying them. I mean, it's tribal. It's not, it's not a business really of ideas. It's a sort of tribal warfare. And if you step across the line between one tribe and another, you're in a very odd place. You don't give a very, uh, well, it doesn't take me to say, I think everyone who's signing in and who's listening to the podcast will be able to hear that this idea of politics is is, is bleak. But, you know, what are we to do if, if, if it's portrayed as such a bleak place? It puts off anyone from wanting to go into politics. And one gets the sense from you, I think you told me this last time, you never particularly wanted to go in in the first place. But we need some passion, don't we, amongst politicians who do want to go in and be there and change things? It's, it's Yes, except it's very difficult to... I mean, I, I agree with you. Of course you're right. And of course we need good people going to politics. And that, that's really, really important. And if good people don't go to politics, the bad people run it. I think that's absolutely true. But the problem is staying in because somewhere sort of implicit in your question is that I should be in the House of Commons. Now, the problem is I literally can't be in the House of Commons because if I had decided to stay as a Conservative MP, I would have to be out there campaigning for Boris Johnson. I would have to be putting leaflets through doors with Boris's face on it. I would have had to have gone into an election in 2019 claiming that I was ready to go for a, a sort of in, 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 yeah, in 2019, saying I'd be ready to go for a no-deal Brexit, which I wasn't ready to do. And at the moment, if I was in the cabinet, doing what I love to do, running a department, sorting out prisons, sorting out international development, the price of it is I would have to be appearing on the Today programme saying that Boris Johnson had not lied to Parliament and had not been to a party in Downing Street. It's very, very binary. I mean, there's not a, an option of remaining sort of somehow honourably at the moment in the Conservative Party. It's just he is contaminating everything around him. So is that just, it's really interesting, and it's, a, again, a really interesting thing you discuss about sort of the three-line whip and whipping and how this feeds into that. You know, no one really does anything but tie the party line unless, and if not, they're gone. Is that, but you just said that's with him. Is that just at the moment, or is that something? Yeah, it's much more extreme with him. I mean, I was one of 21 rebels that he threw out of the Conservative Party because we voted to try to stop a no-deal Brexit. And that had never been done before. Mrs. Thatcher would never have done that. But it's not recorded in British history that MPs were literally thrown out of Parliament for voting against a single bill. He himself had voted against Theresa May's withdrawal agreement multiple times without being thrown out of Parliament. So it was the beginning of a very, very new, raw edge type of politics. What's interesting about Boris Johnson is that 
along with the sort of colorful buffoonish exterior, is some of the mechanics of really tough populism. Deselecting and sacking his opponents, proroguing parliament, all this sort of very, very brutal stuff, being happy to lie at the dispatch box, changing electoral rules in London so that he can make sure that independent candidates don't really have a chance anymore of coming through. This is the sort of people he puts in the House of Lords, the way in which he's tried to rig the appointments to Ofcom, the way in which he's thought about, well, the way in which he's taken money for wallpaper on his walls. I mean, all of this stuff is stuff that no previous prime minister would have done. And it, it, he's exploiting the fact that it is a country based on unwritten rules. It's all based on gentlemen's agreements. And if he's not prepared to behave in that way, there's not much anyone can do. I mean, the guy wrote the preface to the ministerial code, which says, you know, it's of paramount importance that, you know, ministers do not mislead Parliament, right? Uh, and he is the prime minister, he's misled Parliament, and he doesn't intend to do anything about it at all. Indeed, if Kirsana resigns, as it would be the honourable thing for him to do if he's found by the police to have broken COVID rules, one imagines Boris Johnson will just laugh. I was just going to say that exact, that was my question to you. I mean, Partygate, of course, I mentioned at the beginning, and it's at the back of a background of everything we're thinking and talking about at the moment. So this storm you know, will go on, won't it? I mean, with these things, they, they fly up and then they disappear. Would a prime minister, Boris Johnson, ever resign over lying? I don't think he, it's impossible to imagine him resigning over anything, ever. I mean, he's never really done that. I mean, he's, spent his whole life just sort of getting away with things. I, Hugo Rifkin wrote this fascinating piece in the Times yesterday where he said that, and I really felt this in Boris Johnson, it was a, an analogy that really appealed to me. He said that it's like being married to a husband who turns up, we're all married to Boris Johnson now, and he turns up and he sits at the breakfast table with a smirk on his face telling a whole series of horrible lies. And either you ignore him, in which case he's won, or you screech at him, in which case he's also one, because then all his mates say, yeah, but no wonder he behaves like that, because he's married to such a screecher. <laughs> in, other, in other words, what he does, and I felt this when I would go and I'd sort of storm into his office in the far office to complain about the latest catastrophe. But the reason it works is that what he, I think the reason why it's a, so, so this type of weirdly abusive marital relationship is that he, he makes you feel that what he's done that you're overreacting, that what he did was quite trivial. And he does it because he's only thinking about what he's just done. What he refuses to acknowledge is all the things that he's done in the past. And what you're screeching at about the breakfast table is, you lied again, right? You went to another party. And his response is, it's just a party. I mean, come on. A leaving party, drink, come on. It was, you know, so it, you're always being made to oddly feel when you're criticizing him as though you're exaggerating, as though we're kind of obsessed and weird. So we end up wasting three, four days saying, did Sue Gray book the meeting with you or not? And when the, finally, after all the lies and nonsense, they finally admit that actually he requested the meeting, we just sound mad. Why have we spent four days talking about who booked the meeting? Hello, it's Vass here. One of our all-time favourite guests at How To Academy is back. Yuval Noah Harari's next book tells the story of how information networks have made and unmade our world. Nexus, 
A Brief History of Information Networks from the Stone Age to AI is out in September and available to pre-order now. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I think um, you said, okay, despite all of this, well, because of all of this, as you said, you you are not going to, you're not going to work with him because you clearly don't like the man very much at all. Also, because as you said, you physically cannot, you were thrown out of the party. But I mean, you've, you've sort of dabbled in talking about new parties, you and Alistair. And I know that one of the questions, you know, it's not original for me to ask you, because one of the questions that comes up lots from people who are listening to the podcast is, you know, if if you if there's a new party, why isn't it the Liberal Democrats? Why why aren't they the place where people like because both you and Alistair, I know you said at the podcast to disagree, but you are essentially singing from the same hymn sheet on so much, apart from schools where you went to school and other things. So, but why aren't why isn't all of that filtering into the Liberal Democrat party? It's a mystery, isn't it? Because I think that it's extraordinary. I think British politics has always had a huge energy or momentum towards the centre ground. British politics has always been about moderation. And parties have fought in the centre ground. The only reason that Tony Blair won that amazing landslide in 97 is that he moved into the centre. And David Cameron took it back in 2010. So there is this gaping hole in the centre of British politics. And there's this party called the Lib Dems. And occasionally they have these very sort of quite charismatic, intelligent, charming leaders like Nick Clegg. I thought he was all those things, certainly in 2010. And yet they somehow don't really win. Now, that isn't just about the electoral system. There's something about the party which is odd. They haven't managed to seize that centre ground. And I don't know why it is. When I was running to be mayor of London, there was a moment when there was a conversation about whether I should try to merge with the Lib Dems, my campaign, they're running as an independent. The polling suggested that I was on close to 20% as an independent, but that if I merged with the Lib Dems, my polling would go down to 5%. Now, I'd lose three quarters of my support. I'd gain 10,000 street volunteers. I'd gain all now, I don't know why that was. I mean, maybe that was just a particular moment at the beginning of 2020 when they were at a low point. But it is a continual mystery. I don't know enough about that party to understand what's going on and whether there is a, a hope for it, whether there is a possibility for it, because it seems like such a good idea. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's not to do with leadership. I mean, just it, as when you describe it as this gaping hole, there are all it, it, you just think there are all these people like yourselves, who are, who, why, you know, how, why they don't fill it just doesn't make any sense, really. Well, it may be that the public is less uh, interested in that centre ground than we pretend. So maybe that there are a lot of people like me pontificating on about centre ground and how we want to, to work on centre ground. And maybe actually the public in the end is quite tribal and quite likes the clarity of yeah. left against right. Yeah. And that when you're voting in an election, you want to know what you're getting. And the problem with somebody like me saying, well, I'm going to 
fix your broadband or I'm going to sort out the left impairment station or, or I'm going to sort out adult social care is that that's not really what voters want. Voters want to know, you know, are you in favour of immigration, aren't you? Are you going to be tough on crime or not? Are you pro-European or are you anti-European? Are you going to cut taxes or are you going to raise taxes? Are you going to invest in public services or is it all about business? And in a sense, the political parties provide a shortcut for people mm. where they, they sort of get what they're getting. They don't need to read the manifesto. They don't really need to worry too much about exactly who they are. They sort of have a sense of what they're going to get if Boris Johnson or Keir Starmer gets in. Whereas well, somebody they who say they're going to get, but what they yeah. actually get is very different. Well, what they actually get is very different. I think that's fascinating. One of the things I noticed there that's fascinating is that, of course, many, many people who voted for Brexit voted for Brexit because they were concerned about immigration. Many of them actually were concerned about immigration, not from Europe, but immigration coming from other parts of the world. Boris Johnson's now come in. And over the last year, the statistics suggest that the immigration from Nigeria, Pakistan, India has gone through the roof. It's quadrupled, replacing uh, labor that had come in from Europe. So it's a very, very interesting question. If you were to ask voters in Northern England who are anxious about those issues, whether they feel they've got what they were expecting with Brexit, whether that's what they thought would happen as a result. I mean, that feeds into one of the things slightly that you, you know, we're talking about what actual practical things can be done to change a system that you don't, you know, think works. And one of the things we talked about last time, actually, a few people who've written very good books about ways to change society for the better, one of whom is Ed Miliband, Matt Dancona, there's mention of citizens' assemblies. And I know that you were very passionate about that. People talk about that, and it sounds like a really good idea. So, you know, why isn't that happening? Well, so just to explain to people on the, on the call who don't know what a citizens' assembly is, citizens' assembly is a jury. It's a selected like a jury randomly from citizens. And you gather, let's say, 100 people together, but randomly selected. So it would be from all parts of the United Kingdom, all different ages, genders. You make it as diverse as you possibly can, but random. And you then present them with a problem and you sit them down with experts for many, many days to work through the problem. The classic example in the Republic of Ireland was the issue of abortion. And the amazing thing that happened is that you took a very polarized issue, which, you know, like in the United States, anti-abortion, pro-abortion, very polarized in the public. But you sat the Citizens Assembly down and you get into the concrete details. How many days? What's our views on what happens if somebody's raped? And at the end, they produced a proposal, serious proposals, which actually then would put into law. But when I suggested this in Britain, the contempt from my colleagues was extraordinary. And indeed, from many voters, I was accused of coming, trying to take turn Britain into Venezuela. I was told we already had a citizens' assembly. It was called the House of Commons. And the idea that there could be anything so wrong with the way in which our parties work that a random collection of citizens could work things out it was very offensive to people because I think people are actually very elitist. You know, I had a good friend, John, who kept saying to me, your citizen assembly idea is so stupid, you don't know how stupid normal people are, right? I mean, and, I'm not, and, and I'm not all laughing. I can say is, 
That's so weird because actually the kind of issues you're debating in politics are not, I mean, A, I disagree that normal people assume it, but B, that they're not primarily issues which require advanced degrees. They're issues like the kind of relationship you want with Europe or the kind of social care system you want, which connect people's lived experience, where people bring immense years of thought and experience and reflection to bear, and where the process of sitting down in a room with experts gives them a chance to really think and talk these things through. There are so many brilliant questions coming in. Each thing I ask you, I want to go off and talk about for another half hour, but I can't. So I'm, I'm going to, before I, I mean, brilliant questions. We've had questions online. There's questions coming in from the audience um, and we only have 25 minutes left, but I do really want to, and there's so much we could talk about. I'm just, I want to ask about Ukraine because there are a couple of things I'd love to hear your thoughts on. You of all people know, because you've worked in sort of all over, as I mentioned at the beginning, and intervention is such a messy issue, which you've seen, you know, you've seen how it pans out. But do you think we're doing the right thing with regards to Ukraine? Would you advocate doing more? You know, is the fear of Putin and repercussions justified? I, I think the f- to be prudent and thoughtful about Putin is completely justified. And Russia is, at the end of the day, an enormous country with enormous resources. And it's a highly nationalistic country, and it's one of the most heavily armed nations on Earth. And of course, it has a big nuclear arsenal. You need to be very, very cautious. Now, what have we learned from Ukraine? We've learned that Russia is much less competent militarily than people thought. Their attack on Kiev was an embarrassing disaster. Their special forces were much less effective than people believed. And the Ukrainians put up an extraordinary fight. Their morale is amazing. They made very, very good use of their equipment. But the tipping point in that fight was the United States, which has produced something like 20 times more supplies than a country like Britain, and twice as much as all the other countries combined. And that has totally transformed the financial and military position of Ukraine in that fight against against Russia. The question now is what now happens? You've got an angry Putin sitting in Eastern Ukraine and Donbass. And for very understandable reasons, we want to say they must leave every last square inch of Ukrainian territory. They must leave Crimea as well, right? But how? Because it is gonna be very, very difficult now to dislodge Russia. And so long as Russia remains antagonistic, aggressive, and sitting on the eastern border of Ukraine, they will be able to totally disrupt any potential future for Ukraine. It needs internal and external security in order to get its economy going again, get its trade going again, get its prosperity going again. And that, in the end, can only come out of some kind of peace settlement with Russia. So do you think, um, you've probably seen Henry Kissinger's comments today making the news. Have you seen his comments? No, I missed them. What did he say today? He, he said that the wise thing um, would be for Ukraine to come to some sort of agreement and relinquish territory to Russia. D- do you think that that is, is that right? I think there has to be an agreement between Ukraine and Russia. I'm not sure it would have to include them formally relinquishing territory. There are peace agreements which are perfectly possible between countries where you say, your occupation of my territory is entirely illegal. I completely refuse to recognize it. But hostilities cease. 
And there are many examples of that around the world. I think formally ceding territory to Russia would, yeah, would be too much to ask. I'm going to bring in some questions and then if I can sneak some of my own back in if there's time. But as I say, I um, feel I, I must do this. I mean, coming back to something that I was asking you before, it's the same sort of question, but I I, I want to ask it in, the, in this, in this um, articulated the way this person has, which is the question of whether politics is so vitriolic, it just isn't going to ever encourage fresh faces to enter. I think people will always want to enter. And I mean, I'm, I'm obviously contacted all the time by very idealistic young people who want to go into politics. I just caution anyone on the show who's about to go into politics to be serious about the kind of organisation it is and how difficult it is to change and what it would feel like to work in it. If you can imagine the very, very worst company or institution, the very worst boss you've ever had, a completely toxic atmosphere that has developed over hundreds of years. And imagine you coming to me and saying, if you were unlucky enough to work in that kind of organization, and I said to you, but you've got a moral responsibility to stay in it and change it, you might be tempted to say, you haven't really worked in this, you don't understand quite how bad it is. It's a very, very, very weird way of running things. And so I don't know what we do. I think we have to stop voting for monsters would be a beginning. It's a similar question, I suppose, whether moving abroad has changed your idea of politics here in the UK, of UK politics. Yeah, I mean, I think certainly living abroad gives me an incredible sense of how lucky we are in Britain. And, you know, I'm, I'm living in countries where things don't work where countries are on the verge of conflict, where there is immense corruption, where basic things like planning simply don't operate. And of course, in many of the countries that is, like Rwanda, I was with a woman who was living on $6 a month looking after three grandchildren who were literally starving. Um, So we are incredibly lucky in Britain, incredibly lucky to live in a peaceful, largely healthy society that doesn't find itself in conflict, whose institutions remain steady, where our economy continues to grow more slowly than I'd like, but continues to grow. I just think that we shouldn't take it for granted. And if I'm being particularly critical at the moment, it's that I feel how precious Britain is and how worried I am about the ways in which bad performance in politics can erode all those things, because I have worked a lot of my life in countries where eventually people give up on their governments and they just don't believe a word they say and they become utterly cynical and they think they're totally corrupt. And when that happens, you're in real trouble. It's very, very difficult to rebuild the functioning country if people completely give up on the idea of their politics. Um, I, I think this is a brilliant question. Do you think it's wrong that we expect politicians to be relatable, like know about Wagatha Christie and wear jeans? Should politicians represent the people or should they be experts? Who cares if they watch Love Island? (laughs) Well, it's a really interesting question. And and of course, in the end, the only way of answering that is what people want to vote for. And the truth is that being relatable does matter, has always mattered. People want somebody who, it's not just about Love Island or Wagatha Christie, it's about being able to show empathy, being able to show emotion, 
seeming to understand. I mean, I made the mistake in my early career when I was trying to stand for Penrith and the Border for my constituency of trying to emphasize that I thought I had, you know, as I was in an interview with my skills for being a minister, you know, languages that I spoke, skills that I had, as though what they were doing was sort of employing somebody in the way that they would employ someone to run a business. But that isn't really what people want from a politician. People often want something which is sometimes a listener, sometimes a mascot, sometimes a symbol, sometimes a campaigner. The actual business of running a government department, which is what I care most about, you know, am I running things efficiently? Am I making things better? Is only one and perhaps quite a small part of what people look for in their politicians. Hello, it's Vass here, recommending you a new book from our friends at Firm Press. This May, the author of The Argonauts and other genre-defying, unclassifiable modern classics, Maggie Nelson, is back with a new collection of essays. It's called Like Love. The collection celebrates art, artists and thinkers, including Prince, Bjork, Sarah Lucas and Judith Butler. Like Love is available to pre-order now in hardback, ebook, and audio. Another thing that's really interesting, uh, a question here relating to your time as prisons minister. I mean, I was struck to hear you say on the podcast that you think that there are prisons in Britain are the most, I can't remember the words you used, but not, I think the worst, the worst thing we have in Britain is our prisons, you say, something along those lines, but far more articulate. Somebody asks, you did make changes with prisons. How did you do that and why can't others Okay, so that's that's a very kind question. Um, I mean, obviously, a lot of what I did in prisons, ninety-nine percent of it, is brilliant prison officers, brilliant prison governors. But I think what I was able to do as a minister, and it's probably the only job I was able to do it, is to come into a situation where prisons have been getting worse and worse and worse. So over five years, violence had tripled. 10,000 assaults a year to 30,000 assaults a year. And I was going into places where Liverpool, almost every window and some of the landings were broken. Prisoners were chucking rubbish out of the windows. So the whole yards were full of trash. They were sticking their hands out the windows to get drugs off drones. Nobody was being searched. Prison officers were having their eye sockets smashed out, their chins broken. Prisoners were being decapitated. I mean, it was a really brutal situation. And it was a situation which essentially everybody I asked in those early weeks and months said there was nothing that could be done, that it had been getting worse and worse, and it would just keep getting worse and worse. And when I said why, they said, well, it's a very complicated minister. It goes all the way back to early childhood poverty and this, that, and the other. And I think the one thing I was able to do was say, no, it doesn't have to be like this. We can make these places better, and we're not going to need enormous more resources to do this because actually I believe the prison officers know how to do this, we know how to do this, and we just have to get back to basics. And for me, that was, we're gonna fix the windows, we're gonna buy some scanners, and we're gonna start searching people for drugs at the gate, and we're gonna focus on this issue of violence, and we're going to challenge violence when it happens. We're gonna set clear rules, and we're gonna be loving strict, was the phrase that we came up with in the end. 
show respect and affection for prisoners, but also have very, very clear boundaries, very clear sense of what was acceptable behavior and what wasn't. And we would then be able to make prisons that were safe for prisons, safe for prison officers, safe for families. Now, that's a long answer to a question, but what I suppose I'm trying to say is, it was the one example I found in political life where I somehow got it right. I found an intervention which was relatively simple, which could be communicated, and where in that particular case I said I would resign unless I managed to bring violence down within 12 months. And we got that violence down within nine months. We've reduced it by 17%. So it was the, the, the one time politics where I really did feel, okay, I've got something here. But that was partly because I was dealing with a very, very extreme crisis. And I was very lucky to have some very exceptional governors that were happy to work with me on it. Well, it's good to hear a story of, you know, a positive story that things do get done. And yes, you said it was the most disgraceful part of British life, prisons. And it, again, like with everything, it's difficult to move on because we could devote an hour to prisons, certainly, and reform. But another thing that comes up a great deal, someone's asking on the podcast, is of course, one thing you certainly disagree with, as I said, um, is Alistair Campbell's loathing of the school that you went to and one of the person people uh, in the question they ask is the tribalism because of so many people coming from the public school system yeah I think there's a lot of people come to the public school system although of course it's getting less all the time I mean the fact that Boris Johnson is the prime minister and that David Cameron was prime minister before him makes this very very raw but the conservative party itself has every year fewer and fewer people from private schools, it is actually getting more diverse. You can see it just visibly if you look at Boris Johnson's cabinet. If you compare it to Mrs. Thatcher's cabinet, which are basically all white privacy school educated men, he has a cabinet which is much more diverse ethnically in gender terms and in terms of people's education. So it is changing in that sense. Um, I wonder whether the, I don't think the, place that people went to school contributes to tribalism. I think people can find tribalism in different ways. You can find tribalism ideologically. You can even, I sometimes felt when I sit in the House of Commons that people were channeling football, that sometimes the way in which people shouted across the aisles was exactly the same as their, the way that they would confront another football team. Okay, I'm going to try and get through um, three more if I can. I've been I've been obviously hinting at this with every single question, but I'll ask again from Catherine's perspective. Would you consider returning to UK and taking a public role again, either as mayor, London mayor, for which you did so much preparation before, or in some other way? Yes, I think I would love eventually to do that. I think I would have to do it with an enormous uh, amount of thought and caution and work out how I would do it in a way that actually worked. How could I be successful in the system? How could I do it without completely blowing myself up? Um, How could I actually live out the kind of principles that I'm talking about? But yes, I'd love to try again sometime. You must have, I mean, so your form, like you haven't worked out that way yet. I haven't worked out that way because I think the, I mean, sadly for me, they, they've now changed the electoral system in London. So my London mayoral race was predicated on the fact that a bit like the French presidential system is the way that Macron came through, that if you came second, uh, if I'd come second to Steve Khan, there would then be a second round of voting if he didn't get 50%, at which point 
hopefully the Conservative votes would have come to me in addition to the 20% I had, and I would then have been able to win in the second round. That's the way independents win. They've now changed it to a first-past-the-post system, which makes it much, much more difficult for an independent to come through. Um, but I think it can be done. I think if anybody's listening on the show who wants to run as an independent to be mayor of London, <laughs> I think the answer is you've just got to stick at it for a very, very, very long time. You've just got to keep building your machine. You've probably got to lose a couple of elections and you'd eventually win on the third. But you require some very patient donors. You require a lot of investment in doing that. And you basically have to dedicate 10, 15 years of your life to the project. So Jordan Jay asked, if you were an MP now and received an FPM for a party at Downing Street, would you you feel obliged to resign? Yes, I think so. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, some people's criticism of my political career is I'm a little bit too keen to resign. I quite like resigning. But but no, I I I I I I think it's very I think resignation is a really important thing. I mean, Boris Johnson, we're not asking him necessarily to resign as an MP, we're asking to resign as Prime Minister. He can remain on the back benches if he wants. But Amber Rudd, for example, resigned over Windrush. And what people maybe don't remember about that is she resigned because she decided she'd inadvertently misled Parliament. She'd said something that she believed at the time, but she later found out from the briefing wasn't true. And so she resigned. Boris Johnson is refusing to resign uh, on the grounds that he wasn't sure that it was a party at the time. That's not the point. Right. As Amber shows, you resign because even if you inadvertently mislead Parliament, you resign. I think this is a brilliant question from Gareth, which is, based on what we are aware from uh, past votes and referendums, what three-word slogan do you think a party could use that might win the next general election? Based on Bre- get Brexit done or take borders back, um, take back control, I was never a fan and so sad that this matters in modern democracy. I'd go with use common sense, but don't think it will take off. Oh, I love it. I, I mean, I love it. Honest I think, and open and supporting the charities you do. <laughs> I think common sense is a, is a really powerful concept. I'm not sure it's the slogan that wins, but I think there's something really powerful there. I mean, I would quite cheekily be tempted to run against Boris Johnson on take back control at the moment. I mean, the sense of a government completely out of control, completely unaccountable to the people is so strong that I'd be tempted to turn that round on him. You know, we've lost control of our parliament, we've lost control of our prime minister, we've lost control of truth, we've lost control of decency, we've lost control of common sense. So I'd be tempted to do that. I mean, I also would be tempted to run on less talk, more action. I, but fundamentally, I think if you're going to run against Boris Johnson, you've got to make morality and integrity the core of it. You've got to say, uh, yeah, I'd run on enough is enough. <laughs> I love that. But I think that's what we all got ch- told as children, didn't we? When we, when we, when we misbehaved, I feel like that's definitely, um, uh, someone says doing things together. Yeah, it's great. 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 I'm all for that. Yeah. Um, I just spotted another uh, question that I think would be a good one to ask you. Yes, I mean, we, we hinted at this before, but how many people in Parliament, uh, somebody who's anonymous says, would have their conscience actually step up and comment against um, the PM, especially considering they'd be ostracised and pushed out of a well-paid civil servant job? So um, perhaps people just wouldn't do that, or, or, although, the, you know, they have recently. 
Yeah, people have. It's very interesting. You see conservative MPs occasionally coming out and speaking against them, then they retract. There's these very odd moments. Charles Walker, for example, who came out and said Boris should go about party gates, suddenly changed his mind two days ago and gave an interview saying, I don't know where, what I got into, but now I've decided that Boris Johnson is like some miraculous cricketer who comes on in the, the last over and somehow, I don't know, takes four wickets or scores. I mean, he's got this weird idea that somehow he needn't play by the rules of other people. So you, you can see the pressures going on, that Boris will use his immense charm. He's very, very charming. I mean, he's successfully talked around any number of wives, mistresses, bosses, fellow MPs and forgiving him again and again and again. He'll be doing that. He'll be anyone who's calling him to resign, he'll be getting them around for drinking down the street and saying, come on, ready, you know, let's let's get on with this. We've got the Ukraine war to fight and this and the other. And the whips will be uh, chuntering and MPs will be turning their backs on you and your constituency, maybe they're calling up your constituency chair and your local councillors are getting in touch saying, ease off on this. So I think it's important to understand the number of pressures, but still some Conservative MPs have spoken out against them. Tobias Elwood has very clearly, Tom Tugendhat has very clearly, Greg Knight, I believe, has very clearly. So I think, you know, people are doing it, but um, but not as many as I'd like. So um, a, a, a relatively easy and light question to finish off, but really important. I mean, you obviously um, read a lot. You, you talk about... A, books that you've both read a lot on the podcast and you've of course written many and we are a very books central place the how-to academy so what book i mean i think it's an impossible question to isolate one but perhaps you can would you recommend to everyone well i quite like i mean i've been reading nick clegg's book between the extremes i like and i've been taken on i take by that it's a book by yashka monk which has come out called the great experiment on democracies where he tries to argue what the future of democracy could be mm. I think, obviously, Tim Snyder's extraordinary work on populism and fascism is worth reading. Uh, I think that Dieter Helm on climate is always worth reading. But really, 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 if you want to understand contemporary British politics, you have to read War and Peace. Okay. um, Well, very sadly, um, we had to let you go. I know that... Um, you've got to, I think, take an early morning flight. Thank you very much. Thank you. This episode of the podcast starred Rory Stewart and was presented by Hannah McInnes. The producer was Esme Bright and the series is made by me and Dana Outcult. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>